The very latest from our local ag industry. The Farming Show with Dylan Honkoop is next on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM and KGMI.com. Mother Nature's hotline. Yes, I would like to file a complaint. The summer was way too hot and then poof, it's into the 50s. Can't you permanently set the weather to sunny and 75 with a slight breeze? I apologize, but unfortunately, that's not how the weather works here at Mother Nature's. Then what am I to do? I'm always either too hot or too cold. Well, we refer all these cases to Linden Sheet Metal. They can't control the weather, but they can certainly help better control the temperatures in your home, so it's always just right. Yes, thank you. Cancel my complaint, please. You're welcome. Oh, and I do recommend you call right away as fall is already here. At Linden Sheet Metal, our mission is to keep your home comfortable year-round with furnaces, ACs, and heat pumps from top-rated equipment like American Standard and Mitsubishi. You can't go wrong. We have equipment in stock, and there are rebates and low monthly payments available. Linden Sheet Metal, serving the Northwest for over 80 years. Little Caesars is coming to PNW Perks this Thursday. With today's costs, it can be a challenge to feed your family, and Little Caesars wants to give back to our community with a customer appreciation day. And not just one day, every Tuesday, pick up two large cheese or pepperoni pizzas plus free crazy bread for just $13.99. Just walk in and they'll have it hot and ready. Or if you prefer to call ahead, they'll be happy to take your order. And Little Caesars has more than just pizza. With their new hot and ready four-quarter calzone, Caesar wings, pepperoni Italian and zesty cheese breads, plus their famous crazy bread, and don't forget dessert. Try their cookie dough brownie, topped with Twix cookie bar pieces or M&M's. Little Caesars, the world's easiest way to pizza. Locally owned and operated since 1988. Eat a pizza. This Thursday at 8 a.m., get $50 to Little Caesars for just $25. EW Perk certificates not valid for online or mobile ordering. Certificate valid only at Wacom and Skagit County locations. Visit pnwperks.com for more info. People who use water, people who have property, have a water right potentially here in Whatcom County. Or maybe they're unsure about where their water right stands. Any of you folks need to be paying attention to this case down in southwest Washington that continues to unfold. It's Busy Farms. Bill Zimmerman, we had him on the program here. I'll say it was about a year ago. Uh, that story continues to unfold. A farm uh, down in Clark County uh, it, it, near Vancouver, Washington, is in a lot of trouble. Um, and it has to do with water. When I say in a lot of trouble, I don't necessarily mean oh they've done something terrible at least not in my estimation but the state department of ecology has ordered them to stop irrigating or risk fines of up to five thousand dollars per day this reporting is in the capital press don jenkins uh covering this in the last couple of weeks anybody in whatcom county who's concerned about the future of farming, uh, who has a water right or who has farm ground with maybe unclear water rights needs to be paying attention to what's happening down uh, in uh, and near Vancouver with 
Bill Zimmerman. This is The Farming Show. I'm Dylan Honkoop here on, on KGMI. Uh, and joining us this morning is a water rights expert and attorney, uh, works with the uh, the Ag Water Board and the, the Watershed Improvement Districts here in Whatcom County, as well as multiple other entities. Bill Clark uh, is on the phone with us this morning. Bill, thanks for being here. V- Bill is very plugged in down in Olympia, not only on the legal side, but also... Um, on the political side, what, what the future is for water and a lot of different regions, including Whatcom County, where he does a lot of work. He's been very involved in what's happening with this water rights adjudication um, and helping guide where that goes and also informing those of us here who it's going to directly impact uh, what we should be doing, what we need to know about it. Um Bill, thanks for taking the time to chat with us this morning. Talk about Bill Zimmerman down in Vancouver real quick. This guy is facing a bad situation, and he says that the upshot is either he keeps farming one way or the other, or he could subdivide his property and start the development process there on his farmland that's been in his family for well over 100 years. What's going on here? Yeah, thanks, Dylan. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, the Zimmerman issue has been around for a number of years. I think you covered it, I think, previously. Yeah. And it's a situation that I think a number of farms can find themselves in, even if they've farmed their land through their family back into the 1800s in that, you know, water use that predated even the water code when it was adopted in 1917 for surface water, 1945 for groundwater, that early water use farmers had to submit what's called a water right claim to the state by the late 1970s. And clearly there was irrigation um, at the Zimmerman property. And it, and it sounds like they just did not submit that claim form. And so now, even though they've been farming that land through their family through, since the 1890s, they don't have any legal water right that's been submitted to the state. So, you know, the Zimmerman farm, it fa- sounds like it's faced with a situation where while they don't have water for farming, they would have water available if they subdivided the land and drilled individual exempt wells for rural development because under our state law, uh, domestic use, meaning for residential purposes, up to 5,000 gallons per day is exempt from needing a water right permit from the state. So, so that, you're that's telling me that there is a way to get water rights for development, but there is no way for a farm that's in this situation, not, not a new farm. It's been there for over a, since the 1800s and they've been irrigating and doing farming things all along, but there is no way for them to get a legal water right to continue what, doing what they're doing. But there is for houses yeah, he's it, their property is in an area that's a basin that's closed by Department of Ecology to issuing new water rights for irrigation, similar to how the Nooksack Basin is closed to new water rights for irrigation. Um, theoretically, you could find a water right and buy it and transfer it. But if you're in an area where he's at, where there's not a lot of other water rights around, buying and transferring a water right has not been a viable option. The other option would be you know, getting water from a city or from like the PUD down there, but, you know, paying that level of cost for basically, you know, drinking water to irrigate your farm is just not a cost effective option. So the, the, the idea of getting a water right for that property has just not become an option down there. You say it's a closed basin. That's the same for the Nooksack Basin, right? Correct. Yeah. And so under the rule that Department of Ecology adopted in 1985, 
if the basin is considered close to new water rights, there's some you can get water rights that are that can be issued, but you can't use the water when the minimum flow in the Nooksack River drops below the adopted in-stream flow level, which typically happens every summer. And so people need their water rights for irrigation in the summer, so it's functionally closed for for new water rights. So somebody like Bill Zimmerman doesn't really have any options at this point. It doesn't look like it. No, and I know they've you know put a fair amount of effort into figuring out some sort of solution because it's a really interesting, you know, well-loved, well-supported local farm, and they just can't find a water right for it. And again, the irony there is there is water available under the water code if they subdivide and build housing because that type of domestic use for rural housing is exempt from needing a permit. That's the same in the Nooksack Basin, too. Upside down. If you look at the big picture and what our goals are as a community uh, and through this larger region, what, what people want to see happen in terms of maintaining rural character, maintaining local food and farming, uh, protecting watersheds. Um, and again, we're talking with Bill Clark right now. Uh, he is a water rights uh, expert and attorney based in Olympia. Uh, that's that's what our big fear is, right, Bill? I mean, that, that's what the experts are saying is the biggest problem facing our basins and our streams and our, our fish is rural development. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. A lot of the, whether it's um, in the Puget Sound area, there's an agency called Puget Sound Partnership. And at the state level, there's a statewide salmon recovery strategy. You know, the, the number one issue uh, that's that's been a problem for salmon recovery is kind of urbanization and kind of suburban sprawl. And the irony now is that the water rights situation allows that type of suburban sprawl in areas where you're trying to preserve farmland or forest land. So that's that's the irony you're pointing to. And this is thanks to the quote unquote Hearst fix. I mean, yeah, legally, how did that yeah. play out? Yeah, so part of it was the Hearst case that came out of Whatcom County mm-hmm. that where originally the case was a growth management hearings board case that that asserted that the county, Whatcom County, had to review all new wells for impairment. And typically that's always been something that Department of Ecology does because Department of Ecology administers the water code. And the Supreme Court agreed that under the Growth Management Act, county, cities and counties had that type of authority or, or responsibility to review water rights, including new wells. Functionally, that shut down new wells throughout the state, and then the legislature took the issue up and, in essence, reversed the Hearst decision and said, no, ecology adopts the rules, and cities and counties have to follow those rules. And so then ecology um, amended a number of those in-stream flow rules around the state, including the one for the Nooksack Basin. So there's now a 500-gallon per day allowance for new domestic wells. So under that amendment to the Nooksack rule, if you had a, a Zimmerman-type situation in Whatcom County where there was a farm that was found to not have any water rights, they wouldn't have water rights for irrigation, but they could subdivide that farm and build housing. What an upside-down, you know, perverse incentive to do exactly what I think the farming community doesn't want to see, and I think a lot of other folks don't want to see as well. Uh, people who care about streams and about salmon don't want to see more pavement, more homes in rural areas, in the watersheds. Um, it's it's crazy to think about. Um, 
and I guess we should, and by the way, this is a farming show. I'm Dylan Honkoop here on KGMI. We're talking with Bill Zimmer, Bill, not Bill Zimmer. We're talking about Bill Zimmer in this case. We're talking with Bill Clark, a water expert here in Washington State, uh, who's deeply involved with this overall situation and specifically what's happening here in Whitecomb County as well. Um, Bill, what, just for a moment here, we should update folks on you know, what is the, the situation with so-called exempt wells, these wells that, that you just mentioned under Hearst. Now, older exempt wells from before the Hearst case were grandfathered in, right? And then there Correct. are Hearst fix wells, and, and the older ones had, back in the day, the, the rule was 5,000 gallons a day, right? Right. Yep, that's right. So prior to, I believe, 2020 was when the new rules were implemented. Wells prior to that were just subject to the statutory 5,000 gallon limit. And, you know, most, a single house doesn't typically use 5,000 gallons per day. It may be 1,000 gallons per day. After the Hearst rule was implemented within the Nooksack Basin, the limit is now 500. And, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is all of those wells, whether it's a newer exempt well or an old exempt well for a house or for any sort of out, outdoor use, you can also, in the older wells, irrigate. Uh, up to a half acre non-commercial lawn or garden, all of those wells are going to be pulled into the water rights adjudication that is a court case, a lawsuit that Department of Ecology is expected to file in maybe April of next year within Whatcom County Superior Court. So those water rights will actually be quantified through a court process that will start in 2024. It probably will play out over decades but it'll include whether it's small exempt wells or everything up to the biggest agricultural and municipal water rights. So folks who have a home in a rural area that are not served by municipal water or a water association, they have their own private well, which as you're explaining here, uh, uh, an exempt well, quote unquote, it does not mean the well is exempt from having a water right. It, it is a water right, but it is exempt from having to file for a water right. Am I describing that yeah. correctly? Yeah, the distinction is what it's exempt from is having to get a permit from the state, right? So to have an exempt well, which can be singular group domestic, uh, half acre, non-commercial lawn or garden, industrial use up to 5,000 gallons per day or stock water, it's exempt from having to get a permit. So to use that type of well, you don't file a permit application and wait for an affirmative approval from Department of Ecology. You can just use that quantity of water exempt from permitting. But that water that you use is like a water right. It does have a priority date. It is subject to quantification through the water rights adjudication that will start sometime next year. And so whether it's whether you're a small water user or a big water user, everybody needs to be aware of this case and, and how to participate in it to make sure you, you protect your water right. Well, it's something that I think a lot of local folks are, are recently, you know, more people are, are cluing into, oh, my goodness, I, you know, this is going to affect me, this situation that, that's moving forward. Albeit slowly, uh, but this this water rights adjudication situation, this is going to affect a lot more people than uh, I think and understood that it was going to affect them initially. And uh, those people are tuning in, and, and that's good. Uh, you know, there's a recent meeting in Ferndale. A lot of people 
Um, I think that was an eye opener for them. What, what do folks in that situation need to be thinking about and doing right now? Well, I think a few things, you know, one is, um, this case that would be filed by Department of Ecology is the first time in Washington state that exempt wells, meaning people's household wells, would have to be quantified through a court process. Department of Ecology has described having, I think, a simplified process for homeowners where there where the requirements to prove and show their water use would be different than larger water uses, right? Different than a city, different than a PUD or, or a large irrigator. So I think conceptually there will be a simplified process for homeowners for that level of water use, but they still need to participate. It's the same kind of, you know, issue as, as the Zimmerman farm that, you know, they should have filed a water claim probably decades ago and they didn't. Similarly, people in the Nooksack Basin need to be aware of what's going on with this water rights adjudication. So even if you have a simplified process to protect whatever water use you have for your house, you can do that under the deadlines that will be established by the court. It's uh it's an intimidating process ahead. Uh, people are rightfully uh, concerned about what's going to happen. You know, what's what's the hope for folks here who don't, you know, it, people in a similar situation. You know, I've heard recently about a, a piece of farm ground that a local farmer I know is, is farming, doesn't own them, they're renting it, but the, the owner is aware of this as well. The, the ground is being farmed but doesn't have a legal water right for irrigation that it would need to be to, to be secure into the future. That same piece of ground has the zoning for development. It, it, it's zoned R5 for you know, rural five-acre plots that it could be subdivided and put a bunch of, you know, several homes on it. And those, as we're describing earlier, those could get water rights, essentially, through exempt wells for each home. But there is zero water that it can get as, as a f- piece of farm ground right now. Um, so what, what is the farmer and the landowner supposed to, what are they supposed to do? What is the hope for folks in that situation? I know there's a lot of stories like that around here in the Nooksack Basin. Yeah, and I think, you know, especially agricultural water rights have a really, you know, complex and somewhat twisted history within the Nooksack Basin. You know, some people have water rights that have been issued by the state. Others have filed water right claims that will be quantified during the adjudication. Other people have just filed an application for water rights, um, and that application is just sitting in a line waiting to be processed. Whether or not those water rights can even be approved remains to be seen. Um, but like you said, I think the the adjudication, I think, will force people to make some business decisions on do they proceed through the adjudication process, which is a court case that is can be very complex. And so a lot of people will need water rate consultants or attorneys to evaluate the validity of their water rates or can their application be approved. If you're a, you know, 75-year-old farmer and you're at a point in your life where it's like, I don't know if I have, you know, the the funds available to hire the consultants and the attorneys I need, and you have five acre zoning, the business decision might in fact be stop farming, rely on the five acre subdivision, build a number of houses relying on that guarantee of five hundred gallons per day for housing, mm. and then you don't you don't participate in the adjudication. You just file an adjudication for those exempt wells, 
but since there's no irrigation, then the farm goes away. I think it's going to, the adjudication will force that decision for some people. That's, I, that's what I know we're going to see. And we're going to see way more of it um, soon as people start doing the math here uh, on what they're up against in the situation. And it's not going to be good. Um, but in this situation where a farmer or a landowner makes that decision, and that's not what we want to see as a community, you know, farms going out of business, A, and B, the land that was the farm being turned into houses and pavement, then I think most people, again, agree that it's not good. But then can you really see the, the person, the landowner, the farmer in that case being the bad guy? You know, and I think that's a perception. Oh, why are people developing their property? Someone in that situation who cannot continue to farm because they can't, there's no legal pathway for them to get the water that they need to continue. I mean, how can you blame somebody like that? Um, They are between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, no, it's fundamentally an economic decision that will be driven by the adjudication. The one, you know, the one, um, I guess, potential bright spot, if there is one, is, you know, there's a, while well, the adjudication will be filed by ecology and it will be a, you know, it'll be a slow moving process because it's a super complicated court process. It will have, you know, literally thousands of thousands of parties to the lawsuit, meaning anybody who has a water right, anybody who has their own well with their exempt use would be a party to the lawsuit. The trend in a lot of Western states that have these types of water rights adjudications is to also pursue some sort of settlement agreement which has been successful in some other states. And in doing so, you part of the reason for doing an adjudication is to quantify the most senior water rights in the mm-hmm. basin, which are those that belong to treaty tribes. And so the Lummi Nation and the Nooksack tribe have water rights that are based on their treaties. The federal settlement process works to quantify those water rights that belong to the tribes And at the same time, a lot of the settlement agreements include significant amounts of infrastructure and funding for water supply projects, both to support and satisfy tribal in-stream flow needs and on-reservation needs, but also water supply needs for the basin, whether it's for Mm -hmm. cities, whether it's for farming. And so it can be, you know, water supply pipelines and storage and other infrastructure kind of uses. It's increasingly common for states to pursue those types of settlements of their adjudications um, because that will bring actual solutions as opposed to just quantifying water rates and then finding out yeah. who's going to close down their farm because they don't have water. Yeah, we need to bring new water into the system and and do this differently. That's what we've been calling for here. We've been talking about that for a long time here on the show. We continue to call for that. Bill Clark, uh, water rights expert attorney uh, down in Olympia. Thank you for your time on the program and thanks for all the good work that you're doing down there. Thanks, Dylan. Yeah, stay in touch, and thanks for having me on the show. The Levy Bay Market at Exit 260 is where you'll find more in the store. You'll find more in the store because there's so much store. Almost 10,000 square feet. The Levy Bay Market is where you'll find everything you need for on and off the road. You'll find the best value on gas and diesel along with way more than you would expect out of a convenience store. There's a liquor department featuring a great selection of your favorite competitively priced spirits, wines, and mixers. And of course, you'll want to check out the huge selection of ice cold beer in their massive 
Beer Cave. Want to grab a quick bite for breakfast or lunch? Don't feel like cooking dinner? At the Lummy Bay Market, you'll find a great hot deli counter, tasty fish and chips from Skippers, along with their famous clam chowder. Make the Lummy Bay Market your first or last stop of the day for fuel, food, and more. The Lummy Bay Market at just off I-5 at exit 260 on Rural Avenue. Open 24 hours, 7 days a week. Lummy Bay Market, where there's more in the store. You love what you find at Wilson's. Cozy up this fall and winter with new motion furniture from Wilson's Furniture. If you haven't checked out what used to be called reclining furniture in a while, you're in for some surprises. Wilson's has a huge selection of single recliners in an amazing array of styles and fabrics and leather, as well as love seats, couches, and sectionals. Have an entertainment room? Check out the selection of theater-style seating at Wilson's. Check out the models that feature Power Recline, allowing you to pick the precise position to relax and or watch the big game in. And several models are battery-powered. No need to be tethered to an outlet. Stop into Wilson's Furniture today with their huge selection that you'll find in stock and ready for delivery. Your biggest challenge will be deciding what to choose, and the motion furniture experts at Wilson's will be there to help in the style that's perfect for your home and budget. Wilson's open seven days a week and on Online 24-7 at wilsonhomefurnishings.com. There's a lot going on right now, and broadcasters are on the ground covering all of it, bringing you the weather, the traffic, and breaking news, all while entertaining you 24 hours a day. Someone needs to tell you what's going on around the world and in our hometowns. And that someone is us. We are free radio. We are always there. We are broadcasters. Visit wearebroadcasters.com or text radio to 52886 to learn more. Furnished by NAB and this station. The latest local news and important topics of the day from the West Mechanical Studio. Tired of inefficient heating, poor indoor air quality, and rising energy bills? Contact West Mechanical today to explore going ductless with a system from Mitsubishi Electric Heating and Air Conditioning. Find them at westmechanical.net. Get the latest news and information 24-7 with KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. Just like we said would happen, farm workers coming together to speak out about a law that was ostensibly to help them to help farm workers but it's hurting them this new agricultural overtime law we've talked a lot about this on the program we talked about that hearing uh last spring um where a proposal was out there to actually ease the burden uh not just on farmers but on farm workers and allow them to make more money during busy seasons of course the uh state powers that be didn't allow that to move forward but i think a lot of folks were surprised just how much of an outcry there was at that time from the farm worker community the frustration about this new overtime law for agriculture in washington 
Well, that outcry has gotten that much bigger. And an event this week bringing together hundreds of farm workers speaking out on this issue. Welcome this morning here on the Farming Show. Uh, I am Dylan Honkoop. Glad to have you uh, here this morning. And uh, joining me this morning is uh, State Representative Alex Ibarra. Alex, you spoke at the event. Talk about, for, and we can get into the backdrop of this issue and all the stuff that's been going on. But first, let's talk about what were these hundreds of workers saying? What were they interested in? What were they there for at this event Thursday night? Well, thanks, Dylan, for having me on your show, and thanks for the invitation. Um, yeah, so what we did is uh, we've been hearing from a lot of farm workers, from farmers. Everybody's very frustrated about this overtime bill that passed just a couple of years ago. Uh, this year, the farm workers, um, after 48 hours, they um, have to get or they're going to get overtime. And so what that means to the farmers and the farm workers altogether is that they don't get as many hours as they used to because of the law. They don't make as much money that they usually bank and they take mm-hmm. back to their homes in, in Mexico or wherever they're from. And so the outcry is, is tremendous. There was one a farm worker that talked to us that basically said over the last some years, he's been working 3,000 hours of of farm labor. And he said, this year, I'm going to get 1500 Half. That's half the amount of funding that he would have. These Brutal. folks are up here. These folks are up here to make money to send back to their homes. These, here, these people are here just to work, mm-hmm. just to work harvest, not a, a eight to, to five job. So we're talking about guest workers as well as domestic work, people who live here, but a lot of folks who come from out of town, a lot of folks from Mexico and other countries as guest workers, they're here just to make as much money as they can and go back home. During harvest, yes. So harvest is when they make their big bucks is when yep. the apples are ripe, the cherries are ripe, and that's when they get all their hours to work and uh, make the funds that they want to make. And the farmers, at least this is what I've been hearing, are saying, we just can't afford to pay for a, a percentage of the um, the hours that ha- the labor hours that have to go into a harvest season or a pruning season or different busy times of the year, we can't afford to pay 50% more for some of that labor. We just don't have the margin for it. Is that what you're hearing as well? I'm hearing exactly that. I'm hearing that the farmers, when those folks get to 48 hours, it uh, could be noon on a Thursday, and these farmers are telling the, the employees that they there's no more work. Your overtime is used up. We can't afford to keep you anymore for those for the until the next Monday. So they're sitting around all weekend long, not doing anything, and all they got was forty hours, which is a minimal amount of money. Previous years, they yeah. could work as much as they wanted and make as much money as they wanted. Well, and as I've said before here on the show, when I was young and still doing farm work, I exploited that very thing myself. Hey, when it's busy season and there are hours to be had, I'm going to get as many as I possibly can. Yep. But I know the farmers that I was working for, mostly my dad, but others too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But even my dad would have said, you know, if he would have been forced to pay overtime at a certain point, he would say, sorry, I just don't have the margin in what I'm doing for that. You need to call it a week. Right. And at that point, yeah, I I would have been ticked too because I would want to get as many hours as I can because I know it's for a short time and then things are going to slow down and... 
you aren't picking berries, picking apples, making hay, any of that kind of stuff in December, in January. And right. <laughs> when are you going to get those hours? Yeah, where most of us work 40-hour weeks for 52 weeks, uh, 52 weeks a year, these guys work probably for nine, nine months to eight months. Most of the hours come during harvest, which is September through November. And that time is where they make their funds after November they go to December, January, and February, there is no work. So they have to make as much money as they can to supply for the rest of the year, for the next four months, where there's hardly any work. Washington State Representative Alex Abaro with us right now here on The Farming Show on KGMI, talking about agricultural overtime. So that's the issue to get you caught up if you haven't been following this. And certainly we've talked a lot about this on the show. What's new is there is a growing movement of workers speaking out on this and um, wanting to have their voice heard by Olympia, do some workers feel, I would imagine there's some frustration directed at the farmers too, like, hey, why are you cutting my hours? Sure. So most of these, I'd say maybe about half the workers here, half of them are migrant, the others are from different countries. So they basically blame the farmers for not letting them work. And unfortunately, it's, they have no idea because they're from a different country and they don't know exactly how the United States government works. Right. And so during this event that we uh, put together, we basically just said, it's not the farmer's fault. Whose fault it is, is the legislature to pass that law. I'm a legislator. I voted no for that particular mm-hmm. bill, um, but it passed through from the other side of the aisle who wanted this overtime bill. And so when that happened, then it goes into effect. And what we were, this is exactly what we we're explaining to the farm workers. And basically what I said is, I need your voice to tell me what you would like. Not somebody from the other side of the mountains telling me that's not a farm worker that doesn't know how harvest works, how people get paid and how they do it. Telling them over here in eastern Washington how it works. Hmm. And that's what they're doing. Most of the people that are pushing this live in Seattle or they live in Tacoma or they live in these big cities and don't Mm -hmm. have no idea what farm farm workers go through. To me, that's offensive, but uh, I, I, not, not the first time I've said that in on this show, uh, for people to think they know better. That's exactly the kinds of things that we hear about around social justice issues of, uh, you know, don't talk down to people, don't misunderstand them, actually hear their story, walk in their shoes, yet that's the same thing that these folks who often lecture us on those kinds of issues are doing. And I, I view this as a social justice issue, ultimately, at the end of the day. Now, I guess I haven't mentioned, we're talking with State Representative Alex Abara. We are here in Quincy, Washington this morning. You represent, I, I'm blanking, what's your district number? District 13. 13. Yep, so I represent Yakima County, up, up north part of Yakima County, all of Kittitas County, and most of Grant County. So you grew up around here and around the farming world. You know what it's like, too. Sure. So just my, like me, working on farms, picking fruit. Yep. My mom and dad were migrant workers for many years in the... In fact, my whole family from the 30s, 1930s to mm. 1960s. Uh, in 1960, my dad got a full-time job in Quincy, Washington. Mm. Six months later, I was born. I was the fourth kid. And so when that happened, that we weren't buying workers anymore, but we were working in the fields. In third grade, I was put in the fields uh, to thin and weed uh, sugar beet, um, beans, and, other, and pick fruit, pick uh, cherries, yeah apples, grapes, and so did a lot of farm working, worked in the plants uh, for packing potatoes, uh, making french fry at Lamb Weston, 
Uh, so basically, was in the ag field my whole life until I went off to college and I got a degree and got a different job. I know, um, you know, you and I have talked quite a bit. We're both, you know, small farm town kids. We grew up around that. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this kind of stuff is second nature to us. Yep. And it almost takes an education for people like us to be like, wait, people don't understand this. They don't recognize that's how this works in this world, mm-hmm. this world of farming. What are you, you're super well connected in this community. What are people talking about around town? Overtime labor for farm workers. That's really? what they're talking about. That's what every, the farmers are mad because their workers are mad at them for not letting <laughs> yeah. them work. Yeah. And these guys just want to work. They want to make that funds that they were making before. And these laws are not helping. Even though they say in the legislature that these laws are here to protect the farm worker, but it's not. It's hurting them. What about within the Latino community? You know, su- such a vibrant Latino community in this whole part of the state, particularly here in Quincy, as well as other spots. You're very plugged in with that community. Mm-hmm. What, what's people's heart on this? What, what, are they, what are they saying? Same thing. It's the same thing. It's d- depending on who the person is, but Latino population, they want to work. They mm-hmm. don't want to stay home. They can stay home all winter long. When it's harvest yep. time, that's when they make their money. Even the folks that live in town. The folks that work in the, in the orchards, in the, in the ag world, that's where they make the money during harvest because they get to work a lot of hours and they make a lot of money by picking more or pick, picking more fruit because they can work more hours. That's how it works around here because that's, that's why we call it a small ag town. Yeah. And that's how it works. They just don't know it. Now, your brother, and, and by the way, we're talking with State Representative Alex Abara, 13th District uh, Representative. We're here in Quincy this morning, his hometown, his home base. Um, talking about this agricultural overtime issue and the event that happened Thursday night, uh, apparently more events coming, uh, workers, more and more workers across the state uh, wanting to come together and raise their voice about this issue to be heard, uh, to join this movement. Um, I was here Thursday night to see that at the park here in town, and it was an incredible thing. I I want to say in the neighborhood of 500, maybe even more people there in the park gathered around uh, talking about this, getting information, getting plugged in. Um, what's representative of what's your message to those folks concerned about that? What should people be doing about this right now? Well, I think what happened Thursday was what we wanted to happen. We, I thought there was going to be maybe 100. If I was lucky, we'd get 100 <laughs> people there to listen to the message, which was, we want to hear what you want. We don't want other people to tell us what we want in town. Yeah. We, I want to hear, since I'm a legislator and I can go to Olympia, I can carry your voice to Olympia and let them know what you folks want, not what they think you want. Yep. So I'm going to get it from you guys and not from anybody else. You guys are the farm workers. So it has to come from you to me. And then I can really get on to Olympia and tell them what they want, not what they think they want. From. And the, the event organized by protectfarmworkersnow.org as well as Center for Latino Leadership. So people who are interested in that can go to uh, Protect Farm Workers Now. There is a way for folks to sign up to speak out on that issue. A lot of stuff available in Spanish there um, for farm workers uh, who are interested in, in more info and, and sending messages even to Olympia. Also Center for Latino Leaders 
Leaders.org, uh, uh, and those folks have been very plugged in uh, to helping facilitate this kind of activity, these kinds of events. Um, I certainly, you know, I've gotten to know those folks of late, and it's been great. It's been refreshing to work with Maya and her whole team there. Um, they're doing yeoman's work uh, to to make stuff happen, um, and it would lo- I would love to see groups like that more supported, uh, more visible, uh, people going to that community for the truth about issues rather than listening to other people who honestly, you know, there are other groups out there voicing opinions on these kinds of issues, um, purporting to speak for the farm worker community. And the more I talk with people actually in that community, they say that voice isn't legitimate. That's not their voice. They're not speaking for them. And they're pointing out these people have a different motive. They have an axe to grind. They're trying to accomplish something entirely different. And to them, it's a political game where what we're talking about here is just the true voice of the people in a very diverse group of people with a lot of different interests, but all frustrated and uh, connected now, unified around this same issue um, as you are a representative in Olympia, representative Abara, what what do you say the temperature is there right now on this issue? Does this even come up on people's radar screen? Well, it's starting. I actually, I just talked to one of the representatives from one of our senators today, just a couple hours ago, and they basically said, yeah, this is bubbling up all to the national level, where we even heard the President Biden speak about this particular issue. Um, about they might bring overtime to across the country. And so that's probably the last thing I would ever want to see happen because I'm seeing the ramifications of that type of law coming to the state of Washington, and it's all bad. Nobody's making any money. They may not come back. I mean, that's the deal. Part of those migrant workers, H-2A guys, don't want to come up here to work 40 hours. They want to make as much funds as they can in the time allotted, and that's not happening because of this particular law. Yeah, I've interviewed a lot of guys um, actually out in the orchards in the last month or so um, in different places around the state, and they're all saying pretty much that same thing. And and guests, you know, I've talked with folks who live here, uh, domestic workers, um, and then, you know, I've talked with with, uh, guest workers uh, from other countries, and they're like, "Mm, we're thinking about it still. You know, I was asked that um, at the event, um, and someone said, you know, how, what, what percentage do you, do you think of people may not come back? I said, I don't know. I think a lot of people haven't decided yet. And at least the folks that I've talked to are just mm-hmm. saying, we're going to see how this goes, but we're starting to think maybe we don't want to keep coming back here anymore, which would be doomsday for farming here in Washington to not have the people to be able to bring in the harvest. Right. It- Here's a perfect example. We had the meeting at 4.30 in the afternoon. It was probably 70 degrees out. It's perfect skies. And these folks were not working. 450 farm workers or so, maybe 500 or more. And they were not working. They were sitting, not making any money, listening to the the message that we sent, which is great to listen to the message. Mm -hmm. But what they wanted to be doing is working. They had from 4.30 till about 6.30, they made $0. Yeah. And, and they couldn't work because the farmers can't afford to pay the overtime. Yeah, day was done already. Yep, and Versus it was 4.30. putting in the, I remember raspberry harvest when I was a kid, you know, especially when things were heavy, you just keep going. Yep. Uh, you got to stay ahead of it. And for me as a kid, as a worker, making money, 
I was pumped. I'm like, hey, another hour, another X number of dollars. Mm -hmm. I love it. And these guys are all, most of those farm workers are young folks from probably 18 to 30, just in general. And these guys have a lot of energy and they know the harder they work, the more money they're going to make. At least that's how it used to be. Not anymore. And it's because of that, these types of laws that are coming through the system through Olympia that are making their life rougher. Now they may not be coming back. And when we don't have fruit that's getting picked, all of the plants, all of the packing houses don't have fruit to pack. So they're going to go under because there's no fruit, because Mm. there's not enough labor to go around uh, to pick all the fruit. And that's what's happening. And it's not so much the labor, it's that they're not getting the hours to pick the fruit. And so everybody goes south on that. And I suppose one of the driving issues on this, too, is just the price that farmers get for food, even though the, the, the numbers that people are paying in the store certainly have gone up. And everyone's like, wow, food is expensive. Really, you know, at, from a global perspective, we still pay a tiny percentage of our each of our individual income to, to feed ourselves in this country. And we're very blessed that way, uh, even with the higher food prices. But by and large, those higher food prices have you know, almost none of that has transferred to the farmers. You know, talking with folks here, I know back home in Whatcom County, it's the same thing. A lot of prices are still the same numbers that we've been seeing for 10, 15 years or more, you know, and, and maybe things will come up a little bit. Some things are even the same or lower as they were 10, 15 years ago. And that drives this issue as well. You know, if there were bigger margins there, more money to be had for the food, then there would be more breathing room to make this kind of stuff happen. That's not there. So everybody's in the squeeze. You know an awful lot of farmers around town. Are they thinking they can survive? Are they making different plans? Well, I mean, we talked about my brother Emmanuel. He had a he would hire probably a thousand farm workers on a regular basis. And some years ago he saw the writing on the wall. He hmm. saw the payroll bill coming through the system. He saw these other bills that were gonna harm his business. And so he basically decided to retire hmm. at the early age of forty nine or fifty. And he had plenty of years under his belt that he could have worked, but he saw the writing on the wall because of these types of bills. He decided to get out. And there's a thousand workers he hired on a regular basis. They'd come year after year after year to work with him because they enjoyed working with that farmer. And he just stopped. And those people stopped coming to him and now they have to find another employer yeah which and, they may not like as much and i'm hearing a lot of other farmers too say i'm not sure how long we can keep doing this yeah. and, and one farmer that i was talking with at the event who was there and and helped kind of get things ready he said you know i'm gonna have to, if this keeps going this way and especially if next year it goes down to 40 hours a week as the law is scheduled to do mm-hmm. He's like, I'm going to have to change my business model. I'm going to have to grow different crops. I'm going to have to have a lot fewer workers, and it's going to be very different. Yep. So what happens to all those jobs and all that money and all that food that's yep. not produced in, you know, particularly true fruit, which right. the state is famous for, produces the best apples in the world, cherries, and the list goes on and on from there. Um, it, it's a scary thing to see, and we hope that Olympia can come up with an answer that certainly protects workers' needs, but also allows them to maximize their earning potential and protects farms so they can survive the low prices and be able to stay in business here in Washington. Well, if I know your audience, they're mostly farmers, so they yeah. already know what the answer is. The answer is if they, if they can make more money with a row crop, like corn, sugar beet, beans, yeah. then you can do with apples because the 
the price of labor is so high, then right. they're going to go there. Go to and, low labor intensity yep. versus, yeah. Yep. So then fruit. all of a sudden the grapes won't be here for all the great wines we have in the state of Washington because that gets picked, yeah. right? Somebody's got to do the pruning, and it's all those farm labor folks that come around here to do all that um, great work that they do here. 13th District State Representative Alex Ibarra with us here on The Farming Show this morning. Alex, thank you so much for your time having us here in Quincy. Well, thanks for inviting me, Dylan. Appreciate it.